We're continuing to walk with Peter through these uh, passages in the Gospels where we've seen Jesus. I hope, I hope this is what you've been seeing. It's, it's what I've been seeing. Um, seeing Jesus grow larger in Peter's field of vision, just getting bigger in Peter's field of vision. And for those of you who are with us maybe on spring break uh, or, or here a little bit more recently, this is all, this series is all precipitated by having preached through the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which talks about change, metamorphosis, how does, how does change happen in people's lives, how do people change uh, and I'm, I'm absolutely convinced and more convinced as a result of preaching these sermons that change comes as Jesus grows bigger in our field of vision. As Jesus gets ever more beautiful and glorious and wondrous in his loving, saving purpose for his people. And that, I trust, is what we're seeing as we look Uh, at Peter's life, and I want for us to look this morning at John chapter 21, uh, these um, 23 verses in which uh, Peter, Peter gets restored, Peter gets restored, so read with me, it's rather lengthy, but uh, if you have to sit down, that's fine, let me read this whole passage and follow along as we read. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he, was, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Let's pray together. Thank you for this passage, Lord Jesus. Thank you for what is present in it for each of us. Would you come by your spirit? Would you open our hearts? And would you pour into our hearts the riches, the riches of grace found in this passage? We ask in your name. Amen. And finally, you may be seated. I want to begin by asking you a question, uh, whether you came from half a mile away or from Canada or Michigan or New Jersey or Minnesota. I want to ask you this question, what did you bring with you when you came today? What did you bring with you when you came today? And I'm not thinking about your Bible I'm not thinking about your purse or your pocketbook. Different regions of the country, we call these things by different names, right? I'm not thinking about your kids. I'm not thinking about external stuff. I'm thinking about what you brought internally. What did you bring in your heart? What is accompanying you this morning? Think of Peter. Here we've been walking with Peter for the last... Several months, we've seen him fail. We've watched him betray his best friend and the only person in the whole of the universe who truly loves him. We've watched him as he has called this one Messiah and Son of God. And then we stepped back from that. And after 
we watched his betrayal. We took a step back and looked at the behind-the-scenes things. We, we looked at that passage for two weeks in Luke 22, in which Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. We, we've looked at, at the behind-the-scenes thing, the, the precursor to Peter's failure. We've, we've looked at the fact that Peter is caught in this crossfire, the crossfire of this perennial and titanic struggle between Jesus and his enemy, Satan. And now, and now it's been some time, days certainly, perhaps many days, probably some weeks, since all of that, since that conversation that Jesus had with Simon, since the betrayal, since then there has been death and resurrection. And there was that that first Easter morning when Simon raced with John to the tomb to see whether or not what Mary had reported to them, what the women had reported to them, really was true. And you can kind of imagine this, I think. John, the younger, the the more athletic, perhaps, of the two disciples. Peter, the older, more sluggish, thicker, heavier, Fisherman can't keep up with John, and so John outpaces him to the tomb. But John doesn't go in. You can read it in John's Gospel, chapter 19 and into 20. Peter goes in. Impetuous Peter pushes in and sees in the tomb the grave cloths, not disturbed, not disrupted, Not torn off, not ripped apart, but simply collapsed in place on that first Easter morning. And then on that day, later in that day, Jesus appears to disciples. And Peter was one of them. And Peter saw Jesus. And Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5 that that Peter, it seems, was the first of those to whom Jesus appeared. So Peter has seen Jesus. He's seen him individually. He's seen him personally. He's seen him with the other apostles. And now here we are, along the lakeside. Don't you wonder? Don't you wonder what Peter's thinking? We have no idea what Jesus said to Peter previously in that individual conversation, no idea what they talked about. But don't you wonder what Peter has been carrying around with him, in him, over these last days and even weeks? Don't you wonder what Peter was feeling when he went to church, when he went to synagogue? Do you wonder if he ever got up on a Saturday morning and said to himself, I just can't go. With the haunting, haunting, piercing memory of his betrayal rolling around in the rooms and the hallways and the closets 
of his soul. Just can't go. What did you bring with you this morning? An unkind word to your wife? A bitter response to your husband? Looking at something that maybe you shouldn't have looked at? Failing not in a new way, but failing in the same old way. What do you bring with you when you come this morning? Do you think this is just a piece of theater, a guy who gets up in a black robe to talk for 25 or 30 or 40 minutes? What did you bring with you this morning? And what are you anticipating as you come? Are you expecting something? Are you expecting that somehow, because God is gracious and merciful because of his loving kindness knows no limits. Are you coming expecting that somehow that invisible God in the foolishness of preaching might speak directly to you and to what it is you bring with you this morning? Let me give you three words. Let me give you three words to help you hang this passage on. Reminder, recognition, and restoration. Reminder, recognition, and restoration. Didn't you just love reading this passage? I mean, as you read this passage, these first several verses, particularly verses 3 through 6, boy, that sounded awfully familiar, didn't it? Peter with the others fishing all night, not catching anything. And then the next morning, as dawn breaks and as the sun comes up, they give up the fishing, they paddle their boat to the shore, they haul their nets out of the boat. Where does that come from? It's Luke chapter 5, remember? Luke chapter 5, not long after Jesus and Peter have met for the first time, where Jesus speaks to Simon and says, Simon, your name will be Peter. Your name will be rock. Your name will be solid. Your name will be stability. Your name will be a thing upon which others may rest. And then there's that scene at Luke chapter 5 where Peter and the others, having fished, brought the boats in, hauled the nets out of the boats, mending the nets. Jesus is teaching on the shore. Big crowds are gathering. They're so big that they're pushing him into the water. Jesus commandeers one of the boats. Peter gets in the boat with him. They paddle away from shore. We don't know if there are still nets in the boat, but Jesus begins to teach. And then Jesus commands Peter and says, Peter, put your nets out into the deep. Put your nets out into the deep. Did he have to go back to shore to get the notes, to, the, the nets to haul him back into the boat so that he could then paddle? We don't know those details, but Jesus commanded him, put your nets out into the deep. Go fishing again, Peter. Oh, Lord. Lord, we've been out all night and we've caught nothing. Peter, put your nets out. And so what does Peter do? He puts the nets out. 
and they can't haul the nets in because there are so many fish. That's Luke 5. Here's John 21. Same thing. What happened in Luke chapter 5? Do you remember what happened in Luke chapter 5? Jesus commissioned Peter. Jesus used the metaphor, the picture, the experience of Peter as a way to commission him. Peter, you've caught this mess of fish. You will catch men. You will be a fisher of men. He was commissioned in Luke chapter 5. And what's happening in this passage? He's being reminded of his commissioning, right? He's being reminded that Jesus has a purpose for Peter. But in between the two fishing stories is colossal failure. Peter's being reminded of his commissioning. But in this scene, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. You have to think that Peter was doubting, wondering, why does he say, I'm going fishing? Why does he not say, I've got to go find Jesus? I've got to go figure out what's up next for me. He says, I'm going fishing. Read the commentators, read the preachers. This passage is so filled with riches, with wonderful, multi-layered, interlaced evidences of Jesus' kindness and goodness. Peter has got to be thinking, the game is over. I'm disqualified. My sin has disqualified me. I'm going fishing. Let me read to you from a really good book that you need to own. Shame Interrupted. One reason Peter was fishing was that he had nothing else to do. In his own mind, he was persona non grata, unwelcome and ashamed because he had blatantly denied Jesus three times. He had to be thinking, there's no fourth chance. The connection with Peter's initial call to be a disciple couldn't be clearer. A long night of fishing, no catch, a request to try again, a boat overloaded with fish. Then finally, someone recognizes Jesus for who he really is. What was the punchline? Catch men, Peter, not fish. The message was incongruous in the first story. Poor, uneducated fishermen becoming Messiah's disciples. Now it seems even more incongruous. A poor, uneducated fisherman, fresh off three denials, being commissioned by the victorious king. It makes no sense. But when you understand this king and his kingdom, it makes perfect sense. The king prefers his ambassadors, weak and needy. And those qualities 
are at the top of an unworthy person's resume. Do you feel like you don't belong, like you blew it beyond belief? Then you get the job. You see what Jesus is saying to Peter? Peter? Nothing has changed, Peter. You were commissioned back there. And not even that betrayal, the background of which we've seen, the fact that Peter is caught in this crossfire between these perennial enemies, Jesus and Satan, Peter becoming a casualty in that warfare, not even that warfare and his failure can frustrate the purpose which Jesus has for him. And if you think back a couple of weeks, and if you were listening closely and paying attention, I'm going to start doing what Sasan did a couple of weeks ago. Sasan, at a couple of points over the weekend, this is during our missions conference, said, listen to this, this is important. <laughs> if you were paying attention and you listened closely, when Jesus spoke to Peter, he spoke a promise. He said, Peter, Peter, when you have returned... Strengthen your brothers. He didn't say if. He said when you return. Strengthen your brothers. And you know, I trust, from us having looked at that passage those two weeks, the reason that Peter will be restored the reason that Peter will be preserved, the reason that Peter will one day strengthen his brothers is because of the ministry of Jesus. Peter, I have prayed for you. And the purpose of Jesus as his great high priest and intercessor and as the Lord of his life, his purpose for Peter will not fail. I don't know what you bring with you this morning. But are you listening and are you applying this to yourselves? The purpose of Jesus for you, if you are his, cannot fail. Second word, recognition. This is really stunning. You know, there is such an interlacing and an interweaving of discomfort and comfort in this passage, of pain, of pain, and of healing. Second word, recognition. It's stunning, isn't it? Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, I, I love the Bible. And I, I, I marvel at the Bible. Don't you marvel at details that you find in the Bible? Like why, why does John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mention the fact that the fire was a charcoal fire? Do you know that there's one other place in the whole of Scripture where the word charcoal appears? One other place. It appears in John 18, verse 18. As Peter found himself in the courtyard outside the home of the high priest, the text tells us, 
that he was warming himself at a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire. Those two times are the only times that word appears. Again, charcoal, decued, disqualified. If I could write the screenplay for this particular scene, here's what you'd see. You'd see Peter out in the boat. You'd see him with John headed in. You'd see him stripped for work. And then you'd see John lean over after recognizing Jesus on the beach, whispering in Peter's ear, it's the Lord. And Peter, standing up and with recognition, beginning to put his clothes on. I've never been able to figure that out in the text. He's going to jump in the water. Why does he put his clothes on? But he gets up and he puts his outer garments on and he dives into the water and he heads for the beach. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Interesting. Someone made the observation that in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus and Peter were in the boat and Peter had no place to go other than to dive into the water, Peter spoke to Jesus and said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. But here in this passage, it seems, recognizing Jesus, he wants to flee to Jesus. He wants to run to Jesus. He wants to go to Jesus. And so he swims that hundred yards. And he clambers up onto the shore. And he rushes toward Jesus. And he sees the charcoal. And he is stopped in his tracks. And there is Jesus. And there is this horrific reminder again of his betrayal. Now, don't you love it? I mean, Jesus knew they were out fishing. Jesus knew they weren't going to catch anything. He is God after all. He knows everything. Peter confesses that later. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus intentionally, consciously, purposefully built a fire. He didn't use twigs and sticks and loose brush and stuff. He used charcoal. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? What's Jesus doing here? Look, you know how this works with ordinary people, right? If somebody's got the goods on you, you know you're in trouble. They've got the goods on you. And what do they do? What do people typically do if they know something about you that you would prefer that they not know? What do people do? What's the characteristic thing? Husbands do it with wives. Parents do it with kids. Kids learn to do it with their parents. Neighbors do it with one another. I've got the goods on you. Cross the line and you will pay. I've told you the story about my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. She had her laundry out one afternoon. The neighbor turned the hose on to sprinkle the yard. The wind was blowing and it got all of my grandmother's laundry wet. All of this sprinkling ended up on her laundry drying in the sun. What did my grandmother do? She waited a couple of days conveniently until the neighbor had her laundry out. 
She didn't put a sprinkler out. She got a hose attached a nozzle to it, and she just hosed the whole thing down. Retaliation. That's the kind of thing people do when they've got the goods on you. They leverage it. They manipulate. Is that what Jesus is doing here? No, it really isn't. It really isn't. Is there something painful in this? Is there something disconcerting in this for Peter? There absolutely is. Someone has said gospel surgery is free, but it's not pain-free. There's pain here for Peter. But the reason that we can know that Jesus is not seeking in that manipulative, I've got the goods on you sort of way, trying to hurt or harm Peter. The reason we can know that that is not going on is because Jesus has prepared a meal. I, I, I thank Ed Welch for this little insight in connecting these dots. Jesus prepared the meal. The meal was prepared. The meal was ready. And you know what meals mean, right? You know what they mean in our culture. You know what they mean for you. If I invite you to a meal and we go to a restaurant, that's one thing. There's fellowship in that. There's getting to know you. There's meeting and greeting. It's neutral. I'm not on your turf. You're not on my turf. If I invite you to a meal in my home, I'm inviting you into my life. I'm inviting you into my world. It's more. It's fellowship. It's friendship. And that was really true in this culture. When you're invited to share a meal, it is a declaration of friendship. There's a wonderful little book. It's not necessarily a Christian book, but it's a wonderful little book called Three Cups of Tea. And it's the story of a guy who was mountain climbing someplace in Pakistan, and he, and he got lost and separated from his climbing buddies and ended up being taken in by some Pakistanis in a, in a little village in Pakistan. It's either Pakistan or Afghanistan. And he learned in that culture that when someone invites you to enjoy three cups of tea, that person is declaring that you are his friend. This is three cups of tea, folks. This is is Jesus saying, not only, Peter, is my purpose for you the same, not only is it the fact that that your past failure does not disrupt my purpose. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you are my friend. You are my friend. Come and have breakfast. Come and sit with me. Come. And you remember, and I I have to think, I have to think that Peter remembered this. You remember, Peter, what I said about friendship? John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I 
have loved you. I have loved you, Peter. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. You see, what, you see what's woven into this for Peter? All of this memory and this recollection of being with Jesus and that last discourse with all of the, the disciples before the betrayal and the, and the crucifixion and the resurrection. All of this is right on the surface of Peter's mind. Jesus. Jesus is inviting Peter to a meal to reaffirm for him not only will his purpose not fail, but his love for him will not fail. And you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is gutting charcoal of all of its former content. And he is imbuing charcoal with new content. He is gutting it of all of those awful memories. And he is importing and shoving into it, jamming into the idea of charcoal, ideas of love and intimacy and friendship. You're my friend, Peter. Come, let's have a meal together. So for the rest of his life, I can't wait. I mean, this is one of those things. I think I'm right about this. And I'm in good company with Ed Welch and other commentators. We think we're right about this. I can't wait to get to Peter and ask Peter, Peter, for the rest of your life, was charcoal a meaningful, encouraging, reassuring thing for you? Because I believe it was. Every time he cooked his breakfast over charcoal, he was reminded of the smile of his friend and the favor of his friend and the love of his friend. His purpose for Jesus, for Peter, has not failed. His love for Peter has not failed. It's not been disrupted. He's not DQ'd because of his failure. And then here's the third word. It's the word restoration. This is so rich. I mean, it just, it just warrants a sermon all of its own. Restoration, three times, three times. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And three times he says, feed my lambs, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my lambs. It's restoration. He's putting him back in his proper place. Peter, go fish, but fish for men. And when you catch them, love them the way I've loved you. Feed them. Feed my sheep. I love this. Jesus is saying to Peter, your past does not define who you are. Our friendship and your restoration define who you are. 
your past does not define who you are. And here's what I love about this. As you read on, the reason I wanted to read through verse 23 is for this reason. Peter is still Peter. Peter is still Peter. Jesus doesn't say to him, Peter, have you learned your lesson? Don't do it again. He doesn't say that to him. He just says, feed my sheep. Go feed my sheep. Fulfill your calling. Fulfill the purpose for which I've called you. I love you. I'll never stop loving you. Every time you cook your breakfast over charcoal, let it be a reminder to you that I have imbued that image with an entirely new content. I love you. Forget about the failure. And Peter never mentions his failure in his two letters. But Peter is still Peter. How do I know that? This passage. Here's Jesus. He's restored Peter. He said, Peter, feed my sheep. Follow me. Peter turns around, looks behind him, says, what about him? What about him? Jesus says, what about him? He's my business. None of yours. You follow me. Peter's still Peter. He can't help himself. Does he make progress? Of course he makes progress. But he's still Peter. Your past doesn't define who you are. Friendship with Jesus does. Your present doesn't define who you are. Friendship with Jesus defines who you are. And even into the future, Peter will still be Peter. Acts chapter 10, you can go read the passage. I actually thought this one up all on my own. I didn't see this in a commentary. (laughs) Acts chapter 10. Peter has a vision. He's hungry. He's praying. He's hungry. He has a vision. A sheep comes down out of the heaven. What's on the sheet? All kinds of unclean animals. Jesus says to him, kill and eat. Peter says, not me. See, he's still Peter. He's still Peter. He's still that sort of moronic, self-reliant, I'm going to be the one who interprets reality kind of guy. And Jesus has to say to Peter, don't call unclean what I declare to be clean. And you know it doesn't end there? Galatians chapter 2. This is so beautiful, folks. Galatians chapter 2, Paul reminds us that he had to correct Peter because Peter was being drawn away from the purity of the gospel and was being imprisoned again in the legalisms out of which Jesus had delivered him. And you know what's wonderful about that? If you read the last chapter of Peter's second letter, he calls Paul our brother, the beloved Paul. He loved him. But Peter's still Peter, isn't he? You know what's being said there among all other kinds of things? Your past doesn't define you. Your present doesn't define you. Your future doesn't define you. What defines you, my brother or sister, is your friendship with Jesus. So do you really think there's no hope for you? Look at Peter. If Peter's not good enough, look at Paul, chief of sinners. If they're not good enough for you, look at Abraham. Look at David. Look at Moses who they were, who they are, what they will be, does not define them, and it does not define you. It is friendship with Jesus. And here we are at this point in the service where I have the extraordinary privilege in just a few minutes of inviting the friends 
of Jesus to join him at this table, at this meal. There is hope for you this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, I can't take this all in. I'm stunned, I'm staggered myself. I, I am so amazed at your grace. I thank you for it. I thank you. I thank you that you do not define us by our past, by our present, by our future. You define us by calling us your friends. Give us grace that we might likewise define ourselves as your friends. And be with us now as we prepare our hearts to come to this table. We ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing before the throne.